Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I am Jayal. Hello to you, man. What is going on out here in these streets? The weather is acting very confused. You know, these times, you got to be very careful because you're going to need a full pea coat with about three scarves in the morning. And then by 11 in the afternoon, you should be wanting to wear shorts. And then by 1 p.m. in the afternoon, you're, if you're still wearing your shorts, you're going to be cold. And then by 4 p.m., when you put on your coat, you're going to be sweating like an 80s crackhead out here. Shout out to my man Ghost. You know, so you got to be careful, okay? Because you don't want to get sick because Mother Nature is confused around this time. Unless you're in Detroit, Chicago. They still cold. Shout out to my hometown. Um, a couple things off top. R.I.P. to the legend, Bobby Codwell, the cool uncle, passed away. To this day, every five years, I miss seeing his video come up on my IG when people are discovering that the song, What You Won't Do, is sung by a white man. Yeah. What you won't do, do for love. You try everything, but you won't give up. Woo. Tupac redid that song. So many rappers sampled that. But the song itself got bars. It's crazy how, as a kid, when I heard that song, I just thought the melody was good, as often kids do. And then I got older, went through relationships myself. Now those bars sounds like Ghostface Killer or Kendrick Lamar or even Drake. It's, it's, it's amazing, right? And he also got a lot of songs that were sampled, um, a song called The Flame, which... You might recognize it of Biggie's um, Sky's the Limit off the Life After Death album. So if you go back, you listen to Bobby Caldwell, I think, I think the song is called My Flame or The Flame. So my apologies if I got it wrong. But it's where they sampled Sky's the Limit with Biggie with 112. Which leads me into where I was going to get into a conversation about. Um, I don't know when this episode is going to drop. But let's just go ahead and say that March 25th with Mark the 27th anniversary of Life at the Death album by Notorious B.I.G. And I still remember a few weeks before that when it was a late school night. And instead of studying, I was reading my Spawn comic book. I was supposed to be preparing for a Spanish test in the morning, but I had my music bumping outside the, the window loud. And I got distracted because all of a sudden I see Big Papa on the TV screen, like the video. And so I turned down the music because I didn't have cable. We were broke. So to see Big Papa video on a regular TV, and it was late at night, I was like, something's up. And it was the, T the, the 10 p.m. news. And our local legendary newswoman, Amir Makeupson, she froze me. When she said the following, quote, rapper, the notorious B.I.G., was shot and killed 
leaving the Soul Train Awards show after party in California, unquote. That date was March 9th, 1997. And that was the second time in my life that my eyes watered for a man that I had never met. The first time was six months prior to that when Tupac Shakur was murdered by gunfire on a Los Angeles strip. Now, two of my favorite hip hop artists were gone. And standing there in my room, all I could think was, what now? You know, good music and controversy in three years of Biggie's career was all over. I mean, he had dropped the album in 1994, Ready to Die. And he was backed by young, brash, Sean Puff Combs, who had this formula of taking 80s beats that had the melody in the R&B song and blended with Big's gangster rhymes. Now, you know them songs. Now they're classics. Juicy, Big Papa, which had the Isley Brothers sample, and One More Chance, which had the DeBarge sample. The One More Chance remix, that is. Now, for the... Hip-hop street fan, he also had the darker side of the album, you know, which was Warning, where he's talking about getting robbed. Unbelievable, with DJ Premier, legendary DJ Premier mixing, and Everyday Struggle, which, man, I still remember that line. I know how it is to wake up, effed up, pockets, pockets broke as hell, another rock to sell. People look at, people look at you like you, the user, Something, something like you, the abuser. Well, you know what I'm saying. But they don't know about the stress-filled days. Baby on the way, mad bills to pay. That's why you drink Tangeray and try to reminisce and wish you wasn't living so devilish. I remember I was just like you, slanging broke with my... I can go on and on, but Everyday Struggle was my joint. I mean, those songs was painting a picture. I mean, Puff, to his credit, was real big at making albums that were cinema, that were films. Now, Big's personal life, where the controversy come in, was always, was also out there too. I mean, his relationship with the label mate and R&B singer, Faith Evans, he had married her. And everybody had come to know, know that he, him, Faith Evans, although he was married to her, he also had a relationship with his mentee, Little Kim. There was a huge fallout of that. And not to mention his once friend turned adversary Tupac himself which geared a whole East Coast, West Coast rivalry. Although you can make an argument that there was an East Coast, West Coast in hip hop that was growing prior to them. But for the sake of this right here, we're going to stick to that. So when the Life at the Death album was announced, everybody wanted to know, could he do it again? Is the sophomore Jinx going to be there? You know, and he was doing interviews and he was so excited about the album. I mean, like he couldn't wait for the fans to hear how much he had grown as an MC, I still remember his interview on Rap City with Joe Claire. You know, you can look it up on YouTube. And I'm not sure. I want to say that that interview made it came out after he passed away. But the point is, he was doing interviews. He wanted everybody to know how much he's grown as an MC, and he never got that opportunity. On the day of March 25th, 1997. I walked around school 
with my ears just shut. I, I, I didn't I didn't want to hear no praise. I didn't want to hear no criticism about the album. Everybody in school was talking about it because you got to understand back in Detroit, there was already a buzz because on his lead single Hypnotize, he had gave us a shout out when he said, quote, Pink Gators, my Detroit players, unquote. And, and word had got around that shortly before he died, he had visited the city itself. And there was an autographed photo of him in this popular downtown clothing store called the Broadway, which was known for selling dress up clothes and everything like that. And then it used to be, I think the Broadway is closed now when you would go on there to this, to the day they closed, they would have that photo of, of him when he was in Detroit and him signing, you know, that. And they would have it up on display for everyone. So once class ended at 3 p.m., man, I jetted like a flash all the way to Northland Mall to get to the Sam Goody Music Store. Now, here, kids, here's where it gets interesting. We used to have to actually go to the store and actually buy our music. <gasps> <laughs> But see, this wasn't going to be no ordinary buy. This was a double CD. Big was the second rapper to have a double CD. Pac was first with All Eyes on Me, a double CD. And besides the album cover itself being slightly haunting to see Big dressed up in all black, standing next to a funeral hearse, <laughs> I ripped that plastic off so quick. I mean, I, I couldn't wait to throw it into my CD player. And I almost... Scratched the CD. I mean, yes, our CDs, if they got scratched, it was the worst feeling ever. And I almost scratched the CD as soon as I bought it because I couldn't wait to hear what the album was going to give me. And for the remainder of that year, my whole life was Life at the Dove. Life at the Dove as an album itself, it wasn't just a morbid title. I mean, it was a big second coming. It was also the album's theme. I mean, if you go back and you listen to the album now, the beginning of it is a, a prelude. And it's a continuation skit from How Ready to Die, the album ended. Because at the end of the song, Suicidal Thoughts, Big shoots himself. So Life at the Dove opens up with a prelude of, you hear the hospital ventilator. Dee, dee, dee. You hear Puff, you know, pleading for Big. To make it, we were going to be unstoppable. And then as he's talking, his voice goes down. The beat for Somebody Gots to Die starts playing. And Big Flow is just priceless. And you can already hear that his flow, his rhyme style, had graduated from Ready to Die. Because if you go back, you listen to Ready to Die, there are songs where Big is screaming and he's yelling. He got that thug life anger. Because, you know, he used to hang around Pop. We know that. And then there are songs like Big Papa where he real smooth with it. Well, he made a decision. And Life at the Death, his flow was smooth. It was crisp. It was like a mafioso Don style. But just because his rhyme style was smooth, it doesn't mean Mike Wise Big was soft. Kicking the Door was a diss record. I mean, I didn't get it at the time because, listen, I'm from Detroit, yo. We understood direct shots. So Pac, given direct shots, we understood that. We didn't get like subliminals and all of that stuff that they were doing in New York. But it's all love, though. It's all love. But kicking the door, that was a verbal assault, which I can clearly hear now, to all those New York rivals. I mean, Nas admitted on the song, the last reel, I think it was on Godson, where he said kicking the door was for him. 
But it was also towards Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, who had made fun of Big or, you know, took a shot at Big on Only Built for Cuban Links, Raekwon's album, because they were upset that Big album cover was kind of the same of Nas with the baby on the cover. And they wasn't feeling that. Yes, also, too, here's a lesson to anyone that's younger than 30. There used to be a time that if you sounded like another artist, that was a crime. Everybody could not come on a song rapping the same. Just want to let you know, this was a crime. But Big, on kicking the door, he took no prisoners. Because in 95, only Bill for Cuba Links had dropped, which they dissed him. Nas had dropped, it was written in 96, which allegedly he took some shots. Because everybody was upset at Big for being on the cover of the Source magazine, and the Source labeled him King of New York. So Big opened up by saying, quote, your reign on the top was short like leprechauns, unquote. He didn't care. I mean, not only were the lyrics crisp on Life at the Death, but the production was smooth. I mean, the Hitman was an in-house production team. They had did the majority of Life at the Death album, and that was a team like no other. I mean, you had D-Dot, Stevie J, way before Love and Hip Hop. These were the geniuses in music at their time. And the other albums were produced by Legends, Legends also. I mean, you had Havoc from Mob D, DJ Premier, and the legendary Easy Moby, who probably still doesn't get enough credit for his contributions because he produced a lot of tracks, if not, I think all, but I can be wrong, on Tupac's Me Against the World album. He's probably the only producer to work with both. Now, Big was always a Brooklyn MC, but he stated in interviews that he felt it was important to show his diversity by making songs with people who was not necessarily all from New York. He had a song with Too Short on The World Is Field and the famous hit classic Notorious Thugs with Bone Thugs where he shook up the world when he rhymed in their style. And he also took a shot at Pac where he said so-called beef with you know who. And he had the club records, more money, more problems, going back to Cali. And he had the smooth song that I mentioned earlier, Sky's the Limit. He also had that gangster What's Beef. Ten Crack Commandments. Niggas bleed. Yo, that album has something for everybody. I mean, Big was here, right? Like, he was in full form. And that's why I was so sad that he wasn't there. You know, Life at the Death didn't have, for me, one skippable track on that double CD. Not one. But there was one that I kept on repeat status forever. And that is, you're nobody till somebody kills you. I felt that it was beyond coincidence that that was the last song on the album. I mean, for me, that was the Notorious B.I.G.'s actual warning. It was a self-eulogy to his family, his friends, and fans. To anybody who can hear it, it was like a biblical message to me. I mean, each lyric had described the feelings of a young Black adult and also the teens of that time. People like me, who felt like the world only paid attention to them when they were murdered. I mean, on a personal level, someone was out to kill him. I mean, he rapped, you could be shit, flash the fattest five, have the biggest hit, but when your shell get hit, you ain't worth spit, just a memory. <sighs> Big believe that. I wholeheartedly believe though. I just wish it wasn't true. 26 years later, 
life at the death, it still reigns supreme. I mean, it solidified Big as arguably one of the greatest to ever do it in hip hop. I mean, he gets mentioned in a top five all the time. If Big isn't in your top five, it's almost like your top five is incredible. The album became an example of MCism, I mean, diversity and artistry growth. There's not a cookout around that won't respond to B-I-G, P-O-P-P-A, no info for the D-E-A. <laughs> There's not a spade game that won't have a conversation about which New York Nick Big really did rob on I Got a Story to Tell. I mean, Life at the Death is a timeless classic. And it's a lifespan and legacy that will never die. But the sad part about it that I remember then, and I remember every so often with his anniversary is that Big never got a chance to actually see it. He didn't get a chance to actually see how everybody was going to appreciate that album, to hear it. He didn't, he wasn't here physically. When I hear the song now to this day, you're nobody till somebody kills you. You're nobody till somebody kills you. I try hard to not have that song resonate so much. I try to not have that song be so relatable. Because I think I've shared with you before, and if I haven't, let me say it again. I don't go into music trying to relate. I like storytelling. Me relating to a song is just a plus. It's not a necessity. Because listen, I didn't understand nothing Wu-Tang and him was talking about. All that, yo, God, yo, son stuff. I Listen, I wasn't from that. I have no idea what they were talking about. But I rock with it. I rock with it all day long. But you're nobody till somebody kills you. I don't know why in the culture we don't talk about that song more. I don't know if it's just, it's even when I watch Biggs like behind the music back in the day, like nobody really mentions that song. He put that song last on his album and Big was shot in California. I saw an interview with Little C's on the Mav Hopper podcast and Little C's was talking about, and I'm paraphrasing how he wanted to stop talking about Big almost 10 years ago. And they asked him why. And he broke down. He lost a brother, a big brother. And it never even occurred to me, and I don't think it occurred to any of us when Little C's does an interview or anybody from Big's crew does an interview and we asked them to retell that story over and over again. I mean, they car, their truck, or whatever vehicle they were driving when they left that award at the party got shot up. And they saw that with their man, and their man went into the hospital and he didn't come out. And yet we keep asking them to keep retelling the story, to keep talking about it. And we wonder why he doesn't want to talk about it. Well, why you don't want to talk about it, Seas? Why you don't want to talk about it? I mean, bro. It hurts me when I think about the fact that Big's not here no more. I can only imagine to the people that know him, to his kids, especially his son, CJ, who was only born about a few weeks before his passing, his daughter, who he left when she was a child. Now she's an adult. They're both adults. I can only imagine what that feeling is like for them. But you're nobody till somebody kills you. That attitude, that feeling is still around. You know, I got little homies who I mentor and I talk to and how they feel about life is almost no different from any Gen Xer or anybody millennial who came up 
feeling in that depressed state of what's it all for? Why should I even try? They all got that similar feeling. I would think after 26 years, it'll be some growth, it'll be some change in that, but it, it just don't seem like it is. Is that how we get recognized? I mean, life after death was supposed to be about the fact that, and I'm paraphrasing a big quote, I ain't broke no more. I can't rap about being broke no more. He wanted to move forward in life. I saw his mom say on the interview, he was looking forward to life. And ready to die, that was how he was feeling. That's the spiral he was on. And he was looking forward to life. And now that I'm a grown-ass man, I'm looking at the fact that he died at 24 and Pac died at 25. And man, I cannot imagine if you would have put a microphone to my face at their age, what would have came out and how much weight we put on them to carry a generation at that young of an age and how we still do it when we still see a young one like Ja Morette and we see him of the Memphis Grizzlies acting a certain type of way and he's 23 years old. Yeah, he should be held accountable all day long. But when you start putting on these mantles of, yo, you're a role model and all of this, look, I get pinched back about this all the time. I don't think just because you're a celebrity, you're a role model. I don't. Maybe I'm too literal of a person, but life was very simple for me when I was coming up. When Magic Johnson said he was my role model, I viewed Magic Johnson as a role model. When Charles Barkley said, I am not your role model, I didn't look for Charles Barkley to be my role model. Neither did my folks. Listen, around my way, if you really took what these dudes were doing seriously and you wanted to, you know, imitate that, we looked at you like you were slow, respectfully. I'm just speaking about around my way. If you thought that everything a rapper was saying was in detail and everything that they said, it was like real life, like it happened right then and there, and not understanding the, well, the, the connection or the combination of realism and exaggeration like if you didn't understand that around my way we looked at you like something was off with you like we did i i don't remember a time in the culture where we were looking for the most realist i don't know where that happened i will say that i do feel like in hip-hop the difference one of the major difference like people talk about all the differences in hip-hop all day long in the music and i love the music that's that's out now i think there's a lot of trash but i also think it's a lot of good i just think the floodgates are just open for anybody to try but there's good music out there. You just got to go look. I don't think that is all bad. But one of the significant differences, I think, when it comes to street music, whether you listen to drill, you know, whatever, there was a time when if an artist was telling you about the streets, there was always like a three-part way they went about doing it. The intro rhyme would always tell you how broke they were in the beginning, meaning why they're about to make the choice they're about to make. Then the middle rhyme was always about how they live in now that they made the choice that they, had, they, they, they made. And then the last verse was always about the consequence of what just happened. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But if you mark time when Rick Ross came into the game, and I distinctly remember listening to Ross, and there was no consequence at the end of his songs. It was every day I'm hustling, and that's what it is. It was I'm the biggest boss, and that's what it is. It, it was no consequence up to, yeah, I'm, I'm living mafioso life. I'm living this boss life. Whether you believe it or not, it was no consequence in the music. And I feel as if every artist that came out after that pushed the envelope further and further and further and further. 
to the point where we have now fans that look for something and they look for it to be totally real. They look for that experience. And they feel like everything they see online is real. I don't see how you can see it like that, but they see it like that. When I think about life at the death, I think about the life that happened after that. I think about where hip hop went after that, that place. For those of us that were around when Big Hip Hop died, it was an emptiness that we felt. We all threw our attention, majority of us on Hove at the time, but Hove had dropped in my lifetime volume one and it was not hitting like the way we wanted it to hit. So we were all just feeling lost. There was no champion. There was no leaders at that time. That's how we felt. That's the emptiness that we felt because no one can... It took hip-hop a long time to recover from both of their passings. But with Life After Death, when I see interviews of Big and he was talking about he thought somebody was out to kill him, to quote Dream Hampton, a writer in the culture, it was one thing when Pop talked about he was trying to make it to be 25. He always talked like that. It was another thing to see Big start talking like that and start talking about he thinks somebody's out to kill him and then for it to happen. And there's been so many theories of his passing and why and all these other things and stuff like that. And you can have your theory. You can believe what you want to believe. But I find it hard to believe that Big's passing, his murder, was worth it. Whatever people might have thought of him. I, I find it hard to believe that it was worth it. I find it hard to believe that Tupac's murder was worth it. I find it very hard to believe. Looking back on it now, going around, screaming thug life, getting into a couple fights, that might make you have some jail time, but not getting shot up on the strip. Same thing with Big. Yeah, if you know the story, him and Puff was kicking it in California right after Pac had died and temperatures were still high and they Probably shouldn't have been out there that long, but ultimately, nobody deserved that. I mean, you think about the quality of his music, his flow, how he told a story. I mean, when you go back and listen to I Got a Story to Tell, there are people who are making online mini movies to that song. I think Irv Gotti's show, Tales, breaks down that song and make, um, it makes it an episode of the show, Tales. Big could tell you a story as if he was just kicking on the corner rolling dice. It didn't even sound like he was rapping half the time. My mom and pops mixed me with Jamaican rum and whiskey. I mean, who talks like that? And for me, I love when a rapper talks the way they rap because I feel like it's more authentic. But Life After Death itself, when you listen to the album, even now, you're a young one coming up. That album is a standard album. There are certain albums that are held as standards. If you drop a double album in hip-hop, I'm sorry, it's going to get compared to Big and Pox. Because a lot of rappers try to do a double album after that, and it did not go well. Hove did it with Blueprint. What was that, two? Nah. Nah. Didn't go well. I think Bone Thugs and Harmony tried to do a double album. Nah. Nah. We don't remember that. <laughs> just thinking, you know what I'm saying I don't know who tried afterwards and nowadays it's kind of hard to tell because you know we go to our phones but my point is, is that when you listen to albums like that and they have the description about life and what the black male is thinking and how they feel there's something about that 
Look, I get a lot of flack sometimes online or in group chats with my brothers when I'm speaking up or I'm advocating for, you know, women's rights or equality or equity. And I get pushback sometimes because there are certain things that a lot of brothers who I love who don't see it that way. They don't see themselves as being sexist. They don't see themselves as being misogynistic. They see it. A lot of them feel that there no one cares about what the black man feels. And I like to say all the time, listen, man, I, I hear that argument too. I don't hear, think it has to be an either or. I definitely feel like there's a certain degree or an audience of people that feel like black men are just supposed to take it. We're supposed to be this huge rock of no emotions. And we're supposed to take no matter what's being thrown at us. And the stronger one who can take it is the more manly one. I I. I don't believe that. I don't believe that should be true in any generation. I don't believe it should have been true back in the era, back in the day. And it definitely should not hold court now. When I hear life at the death, the one thing else that I feel like that's missing in hip hop is vulnerability. I mean, big rap on missing you. We talk about this man Ogin shot and his homegirl getting killed and how he feel. And you can hear the emotion in it. I mean, I'll be honest with you if I could share something with you. I mean, I was a youngin during this time. And people often like to say that Tupac was more emotion than he was rhyme-wise. I don't believe that. I feel like that comes from a, especially an East Coast bias of people who actually don't really listen to Tupac's music. They only listen to the radio records and they always want to point out Dear Mama, but they never want to point out the album Me Against the World, If I Die Tonight, where he said they say pussy is paper and poetry is power is pistol, murdering these motherfuckers before they get you. My enemies gather in suicidal situations, never to witness the wicked shit that they was facing. Stop it. Stop it. Okay? But he wasn't just emotion, and Big just wasn't rhymes. Big was also emotion. When you hear Sky's Limit, I, I feel that. I feel like the possibilities are out there for me, and I can actually do it. When I hear what's beef, I hear the explanation on what beef is. Y'all think that's what beef? I mean, he was telling us, y'all think what you read in magazines and quotes, you think that's beef? It's almost like you hear what somebody talking about now about DMs and screenshots. Oh, that's beef for you? That's what you ready to go up in arms about? <laughs> Come on, man. What are we talking about here? I mean, Big was really somebody, I think what has to be understood for those that wasn't here, he was really somebody that we was looking forward to kind of carry the mantle. I mean, he was becoming not only just the king of New York, he was becoming the king. I mean, he was doing interviews like on Sway in the Morning where he was making peace with Tupac and his death and how he felt. He was being honest about how it affected him and how he felt about Pop talking about him and his wife and, and, and what he felt was lies. He, he, he was honest about that. But he also show compassion because he know that the loss of Tupac, he felt for Tupac's mom. He felt the fact that they didn't really get a chance to really kind of like have that next conversation. There was some honesty in there, you know? That's what life at the death, the title of it is. Looking forward to life. It wasn't until I saw that this anniversary had popped up where I started thinking to myself, when's the last time I really felt like looking forward to life, like looking forward to it? 
Because sometimes I got to tell you, I get a little scared with looking forward to life because of the expectation. That's something that my therapist has been working with me on is removing the expectation. Falling in love with the possibility, but removing expectation. I struggle with it. It's a practice. It's not something that you're going to get all the time. And I feel like Big was approaching that. But the duality of he was also paranoid that somebody was going to kill him. Now, I walked around like that from a teenager to a young adult where I felt like somebody was out to get me. I, I, one of my original emails was J-Hall25 because I didn't know if I was going to live to be 25. It sounds cliche to say it, but I really didn't think I was going to live long. Shout out one love to my man Adonis, who was murdered my senior year. My senior year, we was 18. Donis had just turned 18 and he was murdered. I don't get too much into the story publicly because what I've learned to understand when it comes to hood stories is that nobody knows. Everybody's wrong. What I do know is that I miss my friend and I visit him every year at his gravesite. And the older I get, the younger he gets with his picture on that gravesite. He was a huge Pac fan. Huge Pac fan. And he died after they died. And you think about that. And you come from environments like that. And Life at the Duff is not just a classic because it had witty rhymes. Life at the Duff is a classic because it's an album about elevating yourself to the possibility of feeling optimistic. We didn't necessarily talk about that a lot in hip hop, the feeling of being optimistic. You can make that argument that from ready to die to life at the death is one of the biggest transitions in the culture on record. From big being the Timberland, give me the loop, give me the loop. And he's fighting with that character of himself and the smooth, suave, to all the ladies in your place persona. And the cool one wins. Not because he's too cool, because he's allowing the new things to come into this life. The resistance that he had for Puff, I don't want to rhyme on this juicy record with these Rick James looking dudes. I don't want this. I want this. I want to be street. He's elevating himself. He's allowing himself to grow. That's what life at the death is, and that's that's what makes it such a classic. That's what we should all be doing. That's the lesson when we go back and we look at that anniversary. That's how we should be viewing life. We should all be looking forward to grow, to not be so committed to just being so right all the time and, and being in your stance. You can be right, and you can be comfortable in that right, but to quote a friend, the comfort zone is a cool place, but you won't do much growth there. Life at the death is more than just more money, more problems, and a good beat, and shiny suits in the video. It's it's more than that. It, it's, it's an album that symbolizes that with success comes stress. The life of a young black man who goes from rags to riches can be overwhelming. And you don't have to choose 
to be defeated. Now, you may be saying to yourself, is it really that deep, J-Hall? And I'm going to tell you, yes, I do. Listen, we're talking about somebody who wrote a whole article for the 20th anniversary of GetRichard.Trine on AURN, okay? And if I can tell you about how that represents the dark side of black capitalism, then I'm sitting here telling you about life at the death because I believe it. I sincerely believe it. Allowing yourself to evolve, allowing yourself to want to grow, that is a story to tell. And you don't have to get caught up in the whole you're nobody to somebody kills you. You can't give an F about your life. And guess what? Disappointments may come. I tell my little homie all the time, hey, listen, life ain't really slapped you yet like the way you think it has. But once it does, you're going to have to learn how to grow through it. Not get over it. Grow through it. Because some of you are sitting right now with new possibilities at your door and you don't want to take it because it's too scary for you. And I get it. Leaning into the uncertainty of life is completely scary. Especially when you were younger and I and I know speaking for myself, like Big didn't want to rap on a juicy beat because he cared what others thought. But once you evolve and you stop caring what these people got to say, you start looking towards life. You almost killed that ego part of you, that old school part of you, that part of you that doesn't want to grow. You kill it. You commit your first murder. You kill it. And you walking out that door not knowing what to expect. And that first step is the bravest step you will ever take in your life. And I believe that for big. I believe that for life at the death. When I hear how the floor arrangements was and him not being angry and I love the dough with him and Jay-Z and how they're spitting and hearing verses about the commission when it was supposed to be him and Jay and allegedly Charlie Baltimore, which to this day, I'm not sure how that was going to work, but it is what it is. But he was opening it the door to possibilities and he was looking forward to life. And it's unfortunate that somebody else had to take his life and couldn't resolve the issue in a nonviolent way. It's a classic album, yo. Do yourself a justice. If you have a certain age, go back and listen and reminisce to it. Chill out to it. Let it just play. Don't put it on shuffle. Let it rock. And if you're young and you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to it also too so you can understand the standard of it. Look, I remember I went back and I listened to Thriller because I just simply wanted to know what the fuss is about. You know, of course I heard Beat It and you know, all these other songs randomly, but I was like, let me go and listen to Thriller from track one to the end. And yo, I got it. You don't have to be of a time to appreciate something. You can be like, oh man, this, this is this is why I get it. I totally get it. The one thing or the next thing that I'll say, and I've said a few, that hip hop is different or the culture is different right now is that there's not a lot of, going back and listening. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we got our music on our phones. We're not riding in the car no more. When I was riding in the car, my mom would listen to the AM station for a certain period of time, and then she would switch over to the FM station. So guess what? For that little bit of time she had the AM station, I used to hear, used to rock when she was younger, and now she's hearing what rock now that I'm here. 
I feel that can be the same way, but we don't do that no more. So there's a huger disconnect in what happened in the past. But if you're somebody that is hearing my voice right now, play that record. Be open-minded. Play that record for somebody that's young. Play that record if you're young. And listen, if you play that record for you old school people, you know, we have a tendency to do, don't tell nobody this is real music because you don't need to diss their music. Then you get mad when they sit in the car and they breathing real hard. <sighs> it is one of the dopest albums ever created. I mean, shout out to Raekwon and shout out to Ghost, but I don't remember them having a reply for that. Nas didn't tell us until like, decades later that that kick in the door song has some anything remotely close to being about him nobody wanted to publicly take that l because big was the dawn he was mafioso flow that's who big was that's how i choose to remember him as a mastermind you know and i don't know if his flow could have got better but i believe it could have so do yourself a favor go to your phone because there's no more Sam Goody. <laughs> and download a classic, like a real classic. And let it ride. Let it ride. Let it play. Love it. Hear it. And simply ask yourself, if you don't take nothing else from this conversation, is what he's saying still, does it still mean something now? And there's a smidgen of what you got to say is yes. Just think about the fact that there's been 26 years. Some of us can't hold our attention for 26 seconds. So if after 26 years, if what the notorious B.I.G. has to say is still resonating with you, you can still see exactly what his flow is and where he's going and how he's walking in his own rhyme, then congratulations. You have experienced life after death. That does it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the History of Being Black podcast. You can always catch our episodes on any of the streams, Apple Music, Spotify, but those are the places and beyond where you can listen to episodes of the show. And also go back and let us know how you feel about it. Check us out on our IG on History of Being Black Instagram and Mean Old Lion Instagram also. You can follow me on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. Be blessed, successful. Talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 